See if you can relate to this story. I was terrified people would see me. All those eyes on me waiting to see what I would say, how I would say it. Would I remember my lines? Would I trip when I went up the stairs? What would all those faces look like from the front of the auditorium? The pressure mounted. It became too much. So I turned and decided to block them out. That's right. In my first ever public speaking opportunity, it was my home church, a recital of some scripture verses and a song. I was four years old. And instead of facing the audience, I stood with my back to them looking straight into the baptistry. (laughs) Ed Welch wrote, uh, wrote the book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, says this about fear of man. Many of the people I've talked to also had an awakening when they saw the controlling power of other people. They woke to an epidemic of soul called, in biblical language, the fear of man. And let me point out on this that no one can control you. You're to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. But we give other people the ability to influence our lives. Although they were avowed worshipers of the true God, continuing with Ed Welch here, below the surface they feared other people. That is not to say that they were terrified by or afraid of others, although sometimes they were. Fear, in the biblical sense, is a much broader word. It includes being afraid of someone, but it extends to holding someone in awe, being controlled or mastered by people, worshipping other people, putting your trust in people, or needing people. However you put it, the fear of man can be summarized this way. We replace God with people. Instead of a biblically guided fear of the Lord, we fear others. And certainly fear of man as the story went with the four-year-old, is not limited to public speaking. And it's not limited to making a presentation. It's a sin, like all others, but this one, I think, can easily work itself into all the different facets of our life without much difficulty, and particularly in relationships. Uh, Family relationships, friends' relationships, relationships with others that we may not even like. This can affect our lives with a relationship, or not even having a relationship with someone else, uh, maybe not even wanting to have a relationship with something with someone else, and yet the way we are orienting ourselves according to that person can be shown as fear of man, trying to gain their opinion or even their disapproval. Consider this thought from the writer of this course. Fear of man is not limited merely to how we act or what we say. It is also related to what we choose not to say or not to do. Fear of man is not limited merely to how we act or what we say. It is also related to what we choose not to say or not to do. Think about this. We certainly oftentimes take fear of man and we apply it to, well, if I'm going to fear someone, I'm maybe not going to be as confident around them. Or maybe I'm not going to say the right words to them. Uh, I'm going to say the words I would have rather not say, but I'm still going to talk to them or whatever it would be. But that's something that we're actually doing. And I think actually, majority of the time, our fear of man can be presented in a way that we don't do something that we should be doing, or we don't say something that we should have said. For example, from personal testimony here, there are times when I go out, uh, for instance, the other day I went and got my hair cut, and the lady who was cutting my hair at Walmart there, she's real bubbly, and we're talking, hey, where are your kids? Do you got kids? Like, yeah, what do you do? What do you do? Blah, blah, blah. And there's times in those conversations and things are running, rumbling along and, and everything's kind of flowing pretty smoothly. And, and there's only three people in this, in this room that can, can give this testimony. I'm one, Bob Welch and Paul Renfro. If you say, I'm a pastor of a church, the whole conversation goes, mm. 
Because everyone's like, I don't want to say anything wrong. I, just, I might offend this person. Oh. If I say, well, what do you do? Well, I'm an assistant pastor. Oh, that's nice. We don't. We, we'll be, we literally will not talk the remaining of the haircut. Because she's, it happens a lot. So there's times where I can be afraid to say, and that's wrong to say, well, I'm, I'm an assistant pastor. So I might say, well, I run a non-for-profit ministry. <laughs> I work with children. Yeah, whatever. But it, what, what, what am I not saying that I should be saying? I should be saying, well, I, I pastor local. Where do you go to church? And using that to promote a conversation about the gospel rather than allowing to shut down the conversation. How about this one? Uh, here's more g- general uh, examples. How about praying in public? Ever had that? You know, you're getting ready to pray in public or gather around a table and you know the table over here is being a little raucous. This might look a little strange or the waiter's coming up. So, hey, let's just give it 60 seconds here and then we'll let the waiter move on out. And then, we'll, and then we'll pray. How about avoiding problems in our life? We have a problem in our own life or a problem that we see in someone else's uh, or in a relationship. We know there's an obvious problem. There's, it's the gr- big 800-pound gorilla in the middle of the room. We know there's some tension in this relationship. And yet, instead of, of uh, addressing the issue, we, we quote or we make ourselves out to be peacemakers when actually we're probably more like peace lovers and there's, we don't address it out of, out of fear that that might make things seem a little more difficult in our lives. How about <clears throat> marriage? Marriage tends to be quite the proving ground for any sort of um, sin or sanctification. How about in marriage, you might be, uh, in marriage you tend to be, you are more exposed to anyone else than that in other individual. Your counterpart, your counterpart knows more about you than anyone else. But even, even that increased transparency tends to make um, there to be a desire to hide more. And we have to fight that. For instance, you might cover up a purchase that you, something that you buy, that you know your spouse would, would not approve of. Maybe you buy it with cash instead of the credit card. Maybe you delay communication about a change in the schedule. Something came along, it twists things up, you know it's going to rock the boat, so we're not going to communicate as well as we should have. Maybe you fear that if others really knew the state of your marriage, they would change their view of you. Or that if your spouse really knew what you were struggling with, what you were fearing, what you were worried about coming up, that they would change how they treated you or loved you. This is the fear of man being fleshed out in marriage. The author of the study gives a great example of fear of man in the church. The church, he says, is another place the Lord uses to grow us in fearing him more, fearing others less and love them more. Yet it often tends to be a place that our fear of others' good opinions can become dominant. You want to be viewed as a mature Christian or having it all together. You think that others around you have it all together and so you can't share their life honestly, your life honestly with them. When we allow our relationships in the church to be characterized by fear of others, we show that we don't really understand who that other person is, we don't understand who God is, and we don't have an accurate picture of ourselves. And I think you could summarize those last three statements in saying, you don't clearly understand the gospel if you think that someone else has it all together. Ed Welch, the writer of When People Are Big and God is Small, gives a couple questions. And let me just, I'm just going to read through these questions as a way to help us diagnose if we're struggling with fear of man. See if any of these apply to you. Have you ever struggled with peer pressure? And there are certainly some adult ways to struggle with peer pressure as much as there are young people ways to struggle with peer pressure. 
want to have the right family, want to have the right look, want to make sure that we're in the crowd, as all those different things, peer pressure. Are you overcommitted? You find it's hard to say no when wisdom says you should say yes. Thank you. Do you need something, quote unquote, do you need something from your spouse, relationships, boyfriend, girlfriend, friends? Do you need them to listen to you? Do you need them to respect you? Do you need them to fulfill a certain role you desire? Is self-esteem a critical concern for you? Do you ever feel as if you might be exposed as an imposter? Are you always second-guessing decisions because of what others might think? Do you feel empty or meaningless? Do you get easily embarrassed? Obviously, some of these things can be personalities, but some of these things can be diagnosis of fear of man. Do you ever lie, especially little white lies? Maybe you just don't tell the whole truth. Are you jealous of others? Do other people often make you angry or depressed? Do you avoid people or certain people? I think we could even take this as far as saying there are certain uh, exercise fads and diet fads at the very basis of it. I mean, how oftentimes we get into it just because, hey, I, you know, I'm, I'm just getting into this because I really want to feel better. A lot of times those things are because I want to look good so others will accept me. I want to wear the right things so others will approve of me. Not all the time, but they can be. These are a small, that's a small list. Certainly they can go on and on. You ever been too timid to share your faith in Christ? Because others might think of you as an irrational fool. We all struggle with fear of man in some way, shape, or form. There are some categories, and we're going to look more closely at these three categories, three primary ways we tend to struggle with fear of man uh, in the coming weeks. But let me just highlight them by saying the three of them would be we fear that people will physically hurt us. This can relate to a number of things. The bully down the street, uh, the violent spouse, the violence in your neighborhood, an angry person, sexual abuse, harassment, verbal mockery, insults, Christian persecution, physical suffering for the gospel, terrorism, racism. Fear that people will physically hurt us. We fear that people will reject us. This is often related to comparison with others. We judge and compare social standing. We have relationships that we would fear that somebody would reject us in. Experiences. Have I traveled to these things? Have I gotten all the experiences I'm supposed to have to be in the in-group? Education. Do I not have the right education to be able to associate Will they reject me because I only have a such and such degree as compared to all them who have such and such degree? Character. Man, I'm a, I'm a, I am a baby Christian. There's no way I can associate. I can, I can hang with these people that are such strong believers. This is something that we have got to understand in our church as well. There are going to be people, and there was somebody last week, I had a conversation, walked into this church. Very difficult for him because he felt like, I, I can't measure up. Certainly that's something he's got to work through, but we can help him saying, hey, we, we've all been there and most of us are still there. We just got the package prettied up a little bit. The fear of being rejected takes on different shapes depending on which side of these equations we find ourselves if we lack any of these things, we may tend to feel inadequate, worthless, inconsequential. 
If we possess these things, we may feel contempt toward those that lack these things. We may feel superior. We may condescendingly pity others. The third one, we had physical suffering, physical hurting us, physical, physical hurt, rejecting us. And then the last one, we fear that people will expose us. The fear of exposure may manifest itself in a variety of activities, attitudes. We may fear that somebody may expose that we have a, a struggle with lust or pornography. Maybe an obsession that we, we're, we're giving ourselves over to escapism. You know, we're eating. Or we're alcoholic. We're giving ourselves too much to, to music or television or movies or media or all these things because we're escaping. We don't want to be exposed for what we're struggling with. Maybe we're perfectionists. Maybe there's an obsession with work. The person that is, man, we're just really working hard these days when in actuality what they're trying to do is hide maybe some incomplete accomplishments or missed opportunities. Maybe it's we're fearing that somebody will expose us because we're hyper-masculine or feminine, taking biblical gender roles and swinging them further out. American hyper-individuality and self-reliance. We don't want people to see what we're really dealing with, so we fear. Now let's go to Scripture. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10. I want to answer the question, who fears man? First Corinthians 10, beginning, we're going to stay there at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Who struggles with the fear of man? Everyone does. It's common to man. All sin is common to man. And those that are apparently strong struggle with it. Those who are apparently weak struggle with it. The rich and influential struggle with it. And the poor and inconsequential, the timid, the bold, the believer, the unbeliever, all of us struggle with this. No temptation is overtaking that is not common to man. All sin is common to man. At the center of, of the fear of man is a worship of oneself. And I want to explain this. And we're going to get more into this down the road. But really, if you're struggling, if I'm struggling, which we're all doing at some point, with fear of man, or we have to stop and analyze the situation. And we'll get a little more into how does the world analyze the situation, but biblically, if we're analyzing the situation, we've got to use biblical terminology. And I would love to say, well, you know, I'm struggling a little bit of fear of man, but I really want to, because I want to do the right thing. Well, that, that can actually be, and we'll talk about it here in a minute, a good, uh, proper fear of man, wanting to honor the Lord and such. But, when it drives me to uh, doing what I should not do, it gets out of hand. Because then it's a worship of myself, a love more of myself than more of a love for God. And we, we would turn that as idolatry. So we raise up this idol of self. In order to, and, and, and that idol then begins to dictate our lives and tell us, well, you've got to do this and this and this and this or I'm going to go away. Well, that's our idol, and we don't want that idol to go away because he's supplying us, falsely, supplying us with what we want. 
So we can't let him go down, so we've got to feed that idol. So therefore, if I've got an idol over here of me, uh, and I love myself more than I love God, then what I'm going to do is say, well, oh man, I've got to make sure that I really keep this relationship over here where it needs to be. Otherwise, they're not going to love me. Otherwise, they're going to expose some sin in my life, and then I'm not going to look near as good. So if I don't feed that idol, all of a sudden my idol begins to fall over and my this false perception of my life's going to just come unglued. What that really means is we're loving ourselves more than we love God and we must get rid of that idolatry. We all in some form or fashion struggle with fear of man. So the surest way of not gaining freedom from such a sin is to continue with the misperceived notion that you or I and the only one that struggles with this particular sin, and there is no way, period, that I'm going to let other people know about this. And yet we're the body of Christ, aren't we? And I'm acting as the mouthpiece right now, and you all are acting as the ears, and in a few minutes we'll act as the hands and feet of God and minister to one another in such a way. But have you ever, have you ever noticed that you can be going along in life and you get a cut or a scratch on the palm of your hand or on the sole of your foot or someplace that's difficult? To function. And it's just a tiny thing in relation to the entire body. And yet it cripples how you conduct yourself. You get a slice on your hand, and you're not all of a sudden you're down to one hand, or you're not able to use it like you, you should, and, and everything gets bent out of shape. And that's the way it is with the body of Christ. We've got this person over here, maybe it's the hand, who's dealing with a little issue, a little sin, and they're thinking, oh, I've just got to hide this. I've got to cover it up. Everyone else seems to be doing just perfectly out there. I'm going to hide this. And then what happens? How do you pick things up when this hand is clasped and not, not wanting to under, uh, uncover a sin? Well, the, the way you do it is, is what we actually quoted here in, in the Catechism, Proverbs 28:13. You confess it. You open the hand. You, you seek repentance. You make restitution. So that the body of Christ can be strong. But we're actually weakening the body of Christ when we hide sin and think, well, there's, there's no way anybody else is struggling with this. Really, truly, I, I must be the only one. It's not the case, is it? We're all struggling. We're all struggling with sin. There's, all, there's always a commonality to our sin. Now, I, I'm not, I'm not uh, saying that we should all line up here in a nice line and everybody's going to get a chance in the microphone we can all speak out our sins and just get them all out there so nobody that's not what I'm saying at all in fact I don't, I don't think that would be wise but there, there's uh, there's an importance for us not to hide our sin there's an, that's why there's uh, there's a parent there's a mentor there's a spouse there's a, a godly older woman there's a godly older man there's an elder there's a pastor whatever it be where you can go to and say I'm struggling with this. you help me I see this as sin I need some encouragement in this area all of us struggle, but why do we struggle? Why do we struggle with fear of man? Here's, a, here's four reasons. First would be past experience. Uh, you go to the doctor's office and you get one of those uh, rookie nurses. I haven't done too much. And it was, it was really, it's very interesting if you go through any sort of medical training. And so when I was getting my physical therapy assistance license, I mean, these kids would be in there, and they're, they're barely averaging C's, and they're going, it doesn't matter, I'm just going to get my C, get out, get the job. And we'd always ask, do you want the C student helping you, or do you want the A student helping you? Oh, I want the A student. Well, there's got to be A, you're going to have to become an A student or something. 
it always happens. You're going to go to the doctors and this is, you know, this is, she's trying to figure out, she's a little nervous in the first day of the job, and she tries to draw blood from you and she misses. Oh, I'm so sorry. Let me help you over here. Oh, we miss again. <laughs> well, what happens the next time you go to the doctor? Okay, I know what happened last time. That person missed, and so you be, your blood pressure goes up, start sweating a little bit, get a little clammy, uncomfortable. Past experiences. And that's just one example, but there are many ways that we, we have past experiences. Maybe we, we confronted a brother in Christ, maybe a best friend about some sin. Seemed really small. We confronted and they just blew up at us. All relationship fell apart. Damaged us. We really, really were hurt by it. And then another sin crops up with someone else and we don't want to address that because of a past experience. Turn with me to Isaiah 51.12. Using this, uh, this verse to describe the second reason why we might fear man, first being past experience. The second would be Isaiah 51.12. I, comma, I am he who comforts you. This is God speaking. Who are you, who, who am I, Cody, that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass? We can be prideful about our fear of man. That's really what fear of man is showing. That we're, hey, God, I've got this. You, you don't have control of this situation. And God's, are you, are you serious? Are you really, a, why? You prideful being that you would actually be afraid. You would, you would, you would seek to rebel against me and be afraid of man who dies, the son of man who is made like grass. Verse 13, have forgotten the Lord, your maker. That's pride, that we forget God and turn to ourselves. Why do we fear man? Pride. Pride is the, is the root, oftentimes, of fear of man. I don't want to look bad. I don't want others to see me. I don't want to be hurt. Past experience, pride. How about, how about a need-based view of people? I need her love. I need his respect. I need my children's obedience. I need this friendship. I need a good church. I need these clothes. I need this type of education. I need meaningful work. Are those needs wrong? No, actually, they're, most of them are God-given. Desires and, and proper desires. But when we take them... Just slightly too far, it becomes fear of man. And, and this, this really feeds, this needs-based view of people really feeds a sinful heart attitude. And this is oftentimes what is being spoken of uh, in many churches. And I'm not uh, saying throw the baby out with the bathwater, but there are many books that would, would focus just on this. You know, if this person would just do what they're supposed to do, you'll have a better relationship. If this person would just say the right words or give the right time to you, you'd have a better marriage. Well, that may be true. But if you are in your sin saying, well, there's just no way I can treat this other person the way God wants me to treat them unless they do this for me, then we've, we've gotten to sin. And we think, well, there's no way that would happen. Why would a man in marriage counseling ever say, 
I, I had to go over here and commit adultery because she wasn't meeting my needs. We'd say, that's ridiculous. But that's what happens with the two-year-olds, isn't it? Why did you hit your sister? Because she took my toy. Why did you hit your brother? Because she did something I didn't like. Or he did something I didn't like. And then it just comes on up. And now we're adults or young people. And that's the same thing we do. We justify our sin because someone else's sin. Need-based view of people. A wrong view of what we deserve. All these things that I mentioned with the needs-based view of people are good things. But do we ultimately need these things? Do we ultimately deserve these things? No. We don't. What do I deserve? I deserve hell and no more. Not a bit. And what do I need? I only need one thing, and that would be that my sins are atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. There's nothing else I need. There's some things that would certainly make life a whole lot easier. But when you boil down to the very nitty-gritty, that's where you get to. I don't deserve anything else. I don't deserve that my wife would love me. I don't deserve that I have three good meals a day. I don't deserve to be standing in front of you. What do I deserve? I deserve hell. And every one of us does. Ed Welch says this, If we think that sin is in any way superficial, then we do not understand the true nature of sin. When psychological needs, rather than sin, are seen as our primary problem, not only is our self-understanding affected, but the gospel itself is changed. A needs theory suggests that the gospel is most deeply intended to meet psychological needs. In other words, the gospel is aimed at our self-esteem problem. It is aimed at our tendency to dwell on our failures. It is intended to be a statement of God's love saying that God doesn't make junk. This sounds good to us, but it is not the gospel. The good news of Jesus is not intended to make us feel good about ourselves. Instead, the good news humbles us. Notice in Isaiah 6. The presence of God first destroyed Isaiah's view of himself. Woe is me, a man with unclean lips. Then it cleansed him and liberated him from himself and his own sinful desires. After his symbolic cleansing and liberation, Isaiah was free to be less concerned about himself and more concerned about the plan of God. Jesus did not die to increase our self-esteem. Rather, Jesus died to bring glory to the Father by redeeming people from the curse of sin. Of course, the cross has many benefits, one being that we are no longer cast out of the presence of God and we have intimacy with the Holy One, but the, co- but the cross deals with our sin problem, our spiritual need. End quote. It doesn't necessarily deal with our self-esteem because that's not what it's about. Fear of man is not simply a psychological problem that can be cured with a pill or therapy. And I would certainly say that a pill or therapy might help. It might make you feel better. But it's not going to get to the root of the matter. Now, certainly, uh, I'm not saying that pills are wrong. There are times for those things. But if the root problem is sin, there's nothing else that's going to drive it out other than the gospel. We're actually just taking a cancerous wound that's spreading that sin and we're thinking everything's going to be okay now because I put this band-aid on it. I'll feel better now that I put the band-aid on it. It won't get to the root of the matter. Got to go to the gospel. Got to understand that um, if we call sin what it is, then there's hope. If we call it as a, a psychological term, fear of man, that's a, that's a biblical term. We take that fear of man and say, well, I'm just a little anxious. 
That's a biblical term as well. But what about if we say, I'm just a little worried? Well, that's a biblical term as well. But what about if we just say, you know, I just want to please them. That's not a biblical term. But if we take biblical terms, we have hope because then we have biblical solutions. What does Scripture say about the fear of man? Let's go to Genesis 3. We know that's common to all people. Genesis 3, 6 through 7. It originated at the fall. Genesis 3, 6 and 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were naked and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Why? Because they knew and they feared. Now that I know what will be the consequences. Originated at the fall. How about Proverbs 29.25? Fear of man is a destructive trap. The fear of man lays a snare. I quoted this at the beginning. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. There's that idol. Idol's always going to lie to us. We're thinking, well... If I can just get this person to approve of me, fear of man, my idol, me, self, worship of myself will be okay. Actually, that's a trap. We can be set free by trusting in the Lord. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. How about Luke 12? Verse 4 and 5. Fear of man is short-sighted and insufficient. Short-sighted and insufficient. Luke 12, 4 and 5. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more than they, that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten by four God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. We oftentimes fear man, but it's short-sighted. There's a limit to what man can do unto us. We should fear God instead. Two more. Romans 8, 35. Romans 8.35 Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? There's a few things to fear. Skip on down to 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The fear of man minimizes Christ. It minimizes Christ. 
If Christ is, as we're seeing in Colossians, supreme above all else, fear of man would minimize him. Last one. Fear of man is opposed to love. The fear of man is opposed to love. 1 John 4, verse 18. First John 4, verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Fear has to do with punishment. We're always expecting. If, if we don't get it right, if we're fearing man, we're expecting them to be, there to be a, a repercussion, a punishment upon us. And yet, if all we deserve is hell, and all we need is Christ then there should not be that fear because the ultimate punishment, really the only punishment that matters has been swallowed in the cross of Christ. has been swallowed by His perfect love. What does Scripture say about the fear of man? It originated at the fall. It's a destructive trap. It minimizes Christ. It's short-sighted and insufficient and it's opposed to love. And there are many examples we could go to in Scripture. We go to Abraham in Genesis 12 who is telling Pharaoh a half a half-truth, a half-lie, because he's afraid of what will happen due to the beauty of his wife, Sarah. So he tells a little lie there. Lot. Genesis 19. Fears the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 27. Jacob is fleeing to Laban because of fear that Esau is going to kill him. Moses in Exodus 2 and Numbers 20 flees as a young man because he kills a man. Aaron, in Exodus 32, gives up to the Israelites' demand and fashions this golden calf. And what does he say? I just threw it in and poof, here comes this golden calf. Samson in Judges 14 and Judges 16 fears Delilah, gives in, and met with a tragic end. Saul is fearing David, responds in jealous anger, trying to pin him to the wall with a spear in 1 Samuel 18. Jonah, Jonah 4, is outraged by God's compassion upon Nineveh. Pharisees, all throughout the Gospels, feared both the response and opinions of other people. Peter, Luke 22, denies Christ, fearing others. No, I, I don't know that man. Three times denies Christ. And even, even continues to struggle with it. Galatians 2, Paul's confronting Peter uh, for how he's conducting himself to the Judaizers. He fears their opinion and thus he alternate, alters his, his doctrine and his practice. And he confuses the gospel. And Paul has to call out Peter on that. Here's some fruit. In closing here, beginning to close, fruit that the fear of man produces in our lives. This is a small smattering. Discontentment. Unhealthy dependence upon others. Anxiety. Cynicism. Now notice this. If I'm fearing this person because I want I have a I have a an idol of self, what I'm doing is I'm taking a an extraordinary amount of 
of burden and responsibility and putting it right upon them and saying, you've got to do this a certain way and treat me just like this or this is not going to work. Can anybody hold up to that? No. And so what happens? Because they're not able to hold up to a burden that only Christ can bear, only He can meet our every need, then we eventually become very cynical to those people. Man, you ever notice how prideful that person is? You ever notice how stuck up that person is? They wouldn't even talk to me. And we begin to be very cynical in our relationships with others because they're not able to hold to this pedestal that we put them on. Then that turns around and next thing you know we've got discontentment and cynicism and they're in there breeding in our heart together and we've got bitterness. Man, I can't stand this church. They're just such... They just never talk to me the way I want to be talked to, talk to. They never invite me to this. They never do this or that. And we've got this bitterness that grows and breeds and breeds and breeds. Fruit of, the fruit that can happen in our lives. Five of whole long list that we could put of the fruit of fear of man. I want to get to, uh, before I give some, some ways to overcome this, We'll continue with that in coming weeks. But before that, I want to get to what does the world do with the fear of man? How does it describe it and how does it cope with it? And let me first uh, put how this uh, world would describe the fear of man. And, and listen to the, um, the terminology that is used. Not biblical, so therefore it's very difficult to, um, to find the answers to these. Here's how they would describe the fear of man or its manifestations. Codependence. Peer pressure, perfectionism, egotism, self-esteem, the alpha male, a type A versus a type B personality. Well, what are the answers to those things? How do you overcome perfectionism if it's manifested by fear of man? I I think it's good to to want to do things well, but obviously we know if it swings too far... Showing fear of man. But how do you overcome it when you've got a word that's not even biblical? You can't go to your concordance and say, Where, where's perfectionism? How do I, it's not there. Fear of man is, though. So how does the world cope with it? And I'm going to read a quote here by Al Mohler that I think is just sums up how the world views this. And, and this, is, this is pervasive in the Christian uh, the walk these days. It's very, very, very pervasive. You're gonna, you, if you just... If you read uh, some on the internet, if you talk to Christians, you'll hear this very often. We live in an age where the primary question asked by most persons is, am I well? What they mean is, am I well in a psychological sense? We have to understand that for Americans, this is normal. It is normal to be told that self is the center of the meaning system. And that self is a project that they undertake throughout the entirety of their lives. As a result, most Americans believe, listen to this, most Americans, most Christians, I'd put in there, believe that their major problem is something that has happened to them and that their solution is to be found within. If I've just not been raised in such a legalistic society, if my parents hadn't been so strict, if I hadn't been, had to be so modest, I wouldn't struggle with wanting to not be as modest. This is all over, especially among young people today. 
As a result, most Americans believe that their major problem is something that has happened to them and that their solution is to be found within. And it, it, it's very palatable to hear that. Oh, so the problem's not me. In fact, I'm the solution. It's those people, if they just fixed their lives, if mom and dad would have just done better, if, if, if... In other words, they believe that they have an alien problem, continuing with Alan Moeller, that is to be resolved with an inner solution. Listen to this. What the gospel says, however, is that we have an inner problem that demands an alien solution, a righteousness that is not our own. Now that now we have solutions. Oh, wait a minute. I don't have to... My life is not driven by what other people do. It's certainly affected, but it, it's not... Driven, and actually be driven by something that is above all else and supreme to all else, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's the one who can... Oh, wow. There's hope here. There's hope here. The problem is the inner problem. The solution is not in here. The solution's in God. The solution's in the Gospel. The solution's in Christ. Let me address quickly before we get to some practical things. Is it ever legitimate to fear man... And how do we know? And the short answer is yes. It is legitimate. And I would certainly uh, not say that there's never, in a, there's never appropriate ways that we should not fear others. I think there's a right sense in that we should uh, fear others and that we want, we want to afford them respect. This is what fathers are called to do, is to develop in their children a desire to realize that there are there is punishment to wrongdoing. So there's a healthy fear there. Why? Because that can create a fear of God in the realization that, hey, there, God has much greater consequences than the, the discipline I'm having to give you now. That's a healthy respect. Uh, it's certainly a right, there's a right sense of fear if you're in a dangerous situation. If you're walking down San Antonio and some guy pulls a gun on you and threatens to shoot you or your family... Don't be fearful, children. Don't be fearful. Of course, there's a, there's a natural physiological sense there that you're going to have. A, it's called a fight or flight response. There's a natural fear that's going to happen there. It's not wrong or sinful to desire that others would approve and accept us. I want others to approve and accept me, not because of who I am, but because of Christ in me. So where, how do we know if it's not legitimate? Fear of others begins to become sinful when it governs our lives. I want them to set me, so I'm going to... Oh man, I know I need to be in the Word of God today, but I've got to spend so much time making sure I've got the right outfit, I've got, my turn, I've got everything I need to have, so that they're going to... Well, that's governing our lives in the wrong way. When we cross the line from enjoying the approval of others to believing that we need or deserve it, when we are so gripped by fear of being physically hurt that we are unwilling to live as the Lord has called us to live in this world as strangers and pilgrims, Recognizing that we will encounter physical pain, that's where it slips over into a sinful fear of man. It's dictating our lives, governing our lives rather than being governed by the Spirit. Conclusion, we fear man because we do not fear God and we do not fear God or we do not fear God enough. Now, we will go into this in much greater detail, but let me take two minutes. You have five, five ways uh, we can begin to use the scriptures to destroy the fear of man. These are not original to me. Most of these came out of Ed Welch's book. Number one, acknowledge that you do fear man and confess it as sin. It's where it all begins, isn't it? 
repentance and confession of our sin. Instead of asking, how can I feel better about myself and not be controlled by what people think, man-centered thinking, instead ask, why am I concerned about my self-esteem? Why am I not being more concerned about Christ? Proverbs 29:25. The fear of man brings us snares. We've quoted. Acknowledge that it's sin and confess it. Begin to grow in the fear of the Lord. Number two. Psalm 34:11. Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Where do we know that? We go to Scripture. Scripture is where we go to learn the fear of the Lord. Deuteronomy 31, 11, 13. When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose, you shall read this law. You shall read the scriptures in front of all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, the men and the women, the children, the alien who is in your town, so that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words of his law. God must be bigger than, bigger to us than people are. One, acknowledge that you do fear men. Confess it as sin. Two, begin to grow in the fear of the Lord. Three, confess where your desires have been too big. Richard Baxter, Puritan pastor, remember the men are so selfish that their expectations will be greater than you'll be able to satisfy. They will not consider those things that might prevent you from giving them what they desire, such as your ministry to others, your job, your family, I would add, or your necessary diversionary activities. They want you all to themselves as though you had no one else to care for them but them. Baxter continues, If you seek first to please God and are satisfied with that, you have but one to please instead of multiples, and a multitude of masters are harder to please than one. Confess where your desires have been too big. can't please everybody. And if you allow that to be driving you, that would be a fear of man. Four, delight in the gospel and rejoice that God has covered your sinful fears and shame. Delight in the gospel and rejoice that God has covered your sinful fears and shame. Christ's unconditional and unwavering love for his elect charted his life. Quoting here. He didn't live to please men. He went to the cross because of his love for his own. Not because of his fear of man. That just had a bad outcome. He went to the cross because of his delight and joy. In the gospel. Number five, last one. Exchange, we'll talk about this coming weeks, exchange your need for others, need for others, with a passion to love them more. Instead of sitting back and hoping they would do something for us, investing in their life, passion to love them more. The fear of man is the sin that we need, that we feel that we need them for ourselves more than our responsibility to love them. Ed Welch again, out of obedience to Christ and as a response to his love toward you, pursue others in love. So we certainly see the fear of man is a, something biblical. There are biblical answers and we'll get uh, deeper into that in coming weeks. But we, we first have to, um, I, I think in closing, what I would encourage us to do as we would go through this study is let's, let's take um, Scripture and and see our lives in the lens of Scripture. Now, I, I would also encourage you by saying, if you're not sure you struggle with fear of man, there's no need to be fearful about that. And so they're thinking, well, where do I struggle? There's gotta, he said all people struggle, so there's got to be some place I struggle with fear of man. I've got to find it. No, no if, if, you, if, you're, if you're a believer, and you're seeking Christ, you're reading the Word, you can trust, that the whole, and you're not harboring sin, that you're, you can trust that if there is sin, the Holy Spirit will show you. 
He may show you by the means of the body of Christ. He may show you by the word of God. But he's going to show you very clearly if there's something that you need to work on. If the Holy Spirit is prompting you in your heart about things that have been said here, we'll take that to Scripture and say, God, he said some things and I, I was pricked by that. Is this true in my life? Go to a parent. Go to a mentor. Go to a friend. Hey, would you help? Some things were said last Sunday. Here's what was said. Do you see this? Well, yeah, I, I do see that. Okay, would you help me? If, if, but if you're... I would say, look at it from the lens of Scripture. Not just saying, well, you know, I'm just a little... I'm, I'm a type A personality, so of course I'm going to... Or type B... Or using all these other terminologies that the world would give doesn't give you any coping mechanism. In fact, that's all it gives you is the ability to cope. It doesn't give you solutions. But instead, see it biblically and address it biblically as God would give us the grace to do so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for the day. And thank you, Father, that we are not left to our own devices when it comes to addressing sin in our life. Uh, We're not left to a fruitless search for answers. But we've been given... um, a direct word from you. Father, I know that I I struggle with this. And I pray that you would give me and anyone else you may have used the word of God to touch this morning grace to approach these things biblically. Father, the tendency is that I want a quick fix. And yet we want to approach these things biblically and we want to seek long-term solutions. So, Father, I pray that we would all run, whether we are struggling with this or not at the moment, we would, we would seek our, solace, our solace, we would seek our, our fulfillment, we would seek our, our ultimate relationship in you. Fear of man is a snare, but there's freedom in Christ in trusting the Lord. Thank you, Father, for your word. We ask now, Lord, Uh, for your grace upon our time of fellowship and the second service. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.